0: Well, thank you, Pastor Josh and uh, Katarina and Kirsten, for ministering to us this morning uh, through worship in song. Um, my name is John McKay, and I am one of the lay elders here at Fellowship Raleigh. Um, Pastor Matt is away for the weekend, and so it is my great privilege and honor to be able to open God's Word and study it with you together. Um, well, if you have been paying attention to the sports world, uh, this week, there have been a few farewells. Uh, for those of you who follow football, or maybe you love somebody who follows football, right, you probably heard about some of these farewells. Some big ones, some pricey ones, maybe a surprising one or two. Nick Saban, Bill Belichick, Mike Vrabel, Pete Carroll, the list goes on. If those names mean nothing to you, just forget that I said that. Some of those guys probably gave a farewell speech to their team, to their coaches, and some might not have gotten to the chance because the news hit them before they realized they were gone. And if we look to American history, there's some good farewell speeches, right? We could look back to our first president, George Washington, when he stepped down from being president after eight years and two terms. Everybody wanted him to stay, but he felt the need to go and he warned Americans in his farewell speech about political parties and about getting entangled in foreign drama and clearly we listened to his advice <laughs> and you can even look to the bible right for some farewell speeches there are some good ones for example the prophet samuel gives a farewell speech in first samuel chapter 12 where he warns israel to stop straying from god look you've asked for this king and finally the lord has given you a king and you're still unhappy You're still disgruntled, and he reminds them to be faithful. Well, this morning, we're going to look at a farewell speech in the New Testament, specifically one from the Apostle Paul to the elders of the Ephesian church. We're continuing in our series on Acts, and our passage picks up in Acts chapter 20 this morning as Paul is winding down his third missionary journey. He's determined to make it back to Jerusalem by Pentecost. Now, back in Acts chapter 19, right, we've been walking through chapter by chapter of this book, 19 verse 21, there was a riot in Ephesus, and the dust settles from that, and Paul says that he has resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go back to Jerusalem. And then after I've been there, he says, I will continue on to Rome. So Paul made it to Greece, but then there was some kind of plot by the Jews And instead of leaving by boat from there to Syria, Paul says, I'm going to go back through Macedonia. So just to kind of capture what's going on here, I want to show you a map. Paul basically retraces his steps over a huge territory, right? Instead of, as the red arrow suggests, I could get on a boat at Corinth and just sail right across the Mediterranean Sea to Syria, three weeks, sitting on a boat, I'm going to hoof it almost a 1,000 miles back the way I came, and that's going to probably take me two months. And then from there, I still have to get to Syria and on to Jerusalem. So this is a pretty big change in plans, right? Sit on a boat for three weeks, walk a 1,000 miles. Now, Pastor Matt walked us through the first part of chapter 20 last week, and as Paul is traveling down the coast of Asia, or modern-day Turkey, Paul intentionally decides to bypass Ephesus. Now, if you're keeping up, right? this is a place that Paul invested his life for three years. And he probably knew that going back into Ephesus was not going to be a quick stop. Right? He knew there would be too many people to see, too many dinners to attend, too many people to sit down with and chit-chat and catch up. And so he decides to pass by. He has the crew park the ship at Miletus, which is about 63 miles from Ephesus. So that's still a bit of a distance. And as we're going to see here, it would have probably taken several days for these men with Paul to go into the town of Ephesus, gather up the elders who he is prepared to address, and bring them back to Miletus where Paul is. And so we're going to pick up this morning in chapter 20, verse 17, Let's read the passage together, and then I'll pray for our time. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you, among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom, will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities. And to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all because of the word he had spoken. That they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, that it is true, um, that we can depend on it and stand upon it. Thank you that we may gather this morning as your church to learn from what you have to say to us. May we apply it to our lives, Lord. What I have to say this morning, may it be glorifying and exalting to you. Let nothing of my flesh get in the way. And may we all center our eyes on the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let it transform us and turn us into courageous witnesses for you in the city of Raleigh and all across this land. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So here we have Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders, his parting guidance of wisdom to men that he probably knew quite well, loved dearly, and poured into personally over a period of time. And knowing this would be his last chance to look him in the eyes and to encourage them, right? Think back to last week, Pastor Matt encouraged us that encouragement is a critical part of Christian life. He encouraged them in their roles. We have here the things that Paul saw as most important to remind these elders of. It's interesting to note that this is the only speech in Acts, as we've been studying, that is directed exclusively at a Christian audience. All the other speeches or sermons that we've seen in this book are directed at non-Christians or mixed groups of people. But here, we have family talk. One Christian leader Talking directly to other Christian leaders about their role within the family of God. And a big idea that I see in this passage and that I want us to take away is that the church needs distinctively Christ-like leaders to care for and guide her people. And more specifically, I want to walk through six distinctives of Christ-like leadership that we see in the passage. Now, you might be saying, okay, John, well, this is, this is great, but why don't you give this talk at the next elder meeting? Like, why is this something that we as the whole church need to talk about? Isn't this for you? Well, yes, it is absolutely for me. It's for the elders of this church, but it's also for you. You see, this passage is important for anyone who is a part of God's family because it describes for us what the modeling of Christ's likeness should look like within our midst. It tells us what we as partners or members of a local church are committing to when we say that Fellowship Raleigh is our home and that we are under the care of elders, this elder team. But perhaps more importantly, this passage points us back to the chief elder, the chief shepherd, the senior pastor of the global church. And so if you're here this morning and you're thinking, well, this one really isn't for me. This is church talk. I don't go to church here. I'm just checking things out. Stay with me because I hope that you will see how this passage is very much for you too. Because this passage is about Jesus. So six distinctives of Christ-like leadership that the church needs. Let's walk through them together. Starting with the first Relational instruction. From verses 17 to 21, look with me at verses 18 and 19. Paul reminds the elders how he lived among them the whole time. He served with all humility and with tears and with trials. You see, Paul embedded himself, enmeshed himself into the lives of these men. He built relationships with them, deep ones at that. He spent lots of time with them. He wasn't keeping them at an arm's distance. He was with them and among them. You could say he was emotionally and socially interconnected with them. And you can even hear his passion coming through in his words. So why why call this out? Why is that important for us to note? Well, I think it can be a bit of a temptation, both within and outside the church, for leaders to become isolated and insulated from the people that they lead. In some ways, right, it can feel easier for us to make the tough calls and to say the hard things, to do the courageous thing if there's some detachment or removal from the people who might take offense. But Paul is right in the thick of it with these guys. We can all probably relate to that idea, right? Because sometimes it's the people that we love the most and are closest to for whom it's the hardest to say the tough things. Because we're in close relationship with them, and the stakes are a bit higher. And yet these verses illustrate that even among close and dear relationships, Paul was courageous to do and to say exactly what needed to be done and said. In verse 20, Paul says he did not shrink from declaring anything that was profitable in teaching in public and from house to house. Paul didn't hold back. He didn't say things to make people feel good or to keep the peace at family dinner. There was no mollycoddling or appeasing or flattery. Paul was primarily concerned with, what does it say, anything that was profitable. And you know, I think this is a bit countercultural for us today. Outside the walls of the church especially, but even within the walls of the church, there is an implicit, if not explicit, golden rule of society. That is, you do you. It's not the norm to give or certainly not the norm to receive challenging instruction on what we should do as grown adults with our lives. We don't like it, we buck up against it, who are you to tell me what I should do? But Christ-like leadership is concerned with what is profitable, not our fierce American individualism that guards us from any outside interference or unsolicited advice. So a question for leaders of the church, do we have the courage not to shrink back? shrink back from declaring in love what is profitable that needs to be heard. And for all of us as Christians, are we willing to receive admonition, exhortation, and encouragement of whatever is profitable, even when it stings, hurts, or is offensive? Paul says that he taught them in two ways, in public and from house to house. And I think this tells us something about how we should be prepared to receive instruction in the church. You know, it isn't just the Sunday sermon where Matt is standing up here and I'm kind of back on the last row and there's good distance and he's kind of making eye contact with other people. He's not really talking to me. He's talking to that guy over there who really needs to hear the verse. Paul taught in public like that among gatherings of people mixed between Christians and non-Christians, or Jews and Gentiles. But it says he also taught them from house to house. Paul spent time in their living room. He saw that elder yell at his kid. He saw that wife of the elder shoot dagger eyes across the room. right? He exchanged meals and spent time with them, speaking directly and intimately into the lives of their families. Friends, this is not consumeristic American church online. It's not life at a distance, on demand, on my terms. This is what we mean by authentic Christian community. And we need both. We need both the Sunday sermon and the shared meal at our table. We need the nice handout with six alliterative points. They're not alliterative, by the way. To remember, and we need the messy fellowship group discussion about what the Bible has to say about sexuality and gender. We need both of those things, public instruction and house-to-house instruction. In verse 21, Paul goes on to say that he testified to both Jews and Greeks, both repentance and faith. To capture what this means for our cultural moment, Paul was saying then to them that there was no place for discrimination in the church. The segregation of their day would have been Jews and Greeks, right? Keep the Gentiles at a distance, and that had no place in the church of God. Paul ministered to both. Same message of repentance, you have sinned, and the same message of faith trust, and salvation through Christ. So let us not lose sight of that for our day. Galatians 3.28 reminds us, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. We cannot divide or change the fundamentals of the gospel from people to people based on race, socioeconomic status, where they live, or any other aspect of their identity. Six distinctives of Christ-like leadership for the church relational instruction is the first that Paul shows us. The second, sacrificial submission. Sacrificial submission from verses 22 to 25. In verse 22, Paul says that he's going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. Now, it's important that we see here the leader, Paul, is submissive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Paul has a conviction from the Lord that he needs to be in Jerusalem. And as I illustrated earlier with the mileage count, this is not some convenience for him. He is submitting himself to the Lord's prompting to go and sacrificing to do it. In verse 23, Paul notes that he doesn't know what will happen to him there, but the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city, imprisonment and afflictions await. Again, a portrait of sacrifice. Paul knows what the likely outcome is. He anticipates that persecution and opposition are going to find him in Jerusalem, and yet he's resolute. In fact, if we skip ahead to Acts chapter 21, we see what happens. When Paul gets to Jerusalem, he shows up at the temple and he is seized by a mob. He is accused of defiling the temple. He is dragged out of the temple. He is beaten and attacked with the intent to kill him and he is arrested and bound with not one, but two chains. Now, just a few years prior to that, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians that no one should be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Right? So Paul understands that the calling of a Christian is one of suffering. Suffering is part of what it means to be a Christian. And therefore, sacrificial submission to suffering is required of every follower of Jesus. But it's certainly required of Christ-like leaders of the church. In verse 24, despite these trials and looming hardships, Paul reminds the elders that he does not account his life of any value, nor as precious to myself. Now that's a statement, right? I mean, just read what he says there. Of no value. So what is he saying? Is he saying that his life is worthless? That there's literally no value in his life at all? I mean, that's what the words say. Maybe his point is, more importantly, that the preservation of his life, that what he might want, that what his flesh desires is not the priority. In fact, that Paul's life and Paul's priorities are of no value when set next to the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That that trumps all. And so Paul has the gospel in mind here. He understands that his life is not his own. And look with me at what he says to Timothy, his protege, several years later in his first letter he writes to him, 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 14 to 17 Paul says, "And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost; but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost," Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So you see, Paul is wholly submitted to what God will do with his life. Paul makes plans. Paul schedules dinners. He provides for his needs. He does what every human does. He has a calendar. But he is fully ready to do exactly what the Spirit of God leads him to do. Why? Because Paul gets the gospel. Not because he's a super Christian. Not because he's an apostle. Not because he wrote half the New Testament. Because the gospel transformed his life. Paul is no longer king. Of Paul's life. Jesus is king of Paul's life. And that's why his life is not precious to himself. In verse 25, here we have the hard news, right? Paul breaks that this is farewell. You won't see my face again, he says. And the text doesn't say this explicitly, so I want to be careful here, but one could imagine that Paul would have liked to stay in Ephesus, right? I mean, we see a picture of close relationship, of care, of love, and these are his people. He loves them, and surely there must have been great ministry opportunity in Ephesus, right? You could make a pretty solid biblical case, I think, for the East Ephesus church plant, right? Let's train up some elders. Let's hang out here. We'll have an equipping ministry, and we'll send those guys out into the regions of Asia, a great home base for Paul to continue ministry. Pretty solid case, I think, for that. But Paul is sacrificially submitted to the Lord's will. He denies his preferences, whatever he might have been entitled to or could have done, and he bids those that he loves farewell because he is prepared to do what the Spirit of God has called him to do and go to Jerusalem. Preaching to myself here, This is pretty sobering stuff. Are our church leaders, am I sacrificially submitted to the will of God in this way? Am I ready to not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself? Again, is that the calling on a super Christian of a higher tier of follower of Christ? No. No, it's the calling of every Christian, right? Jesus in Matthew Chapter 16, verse 21 says himself, If anyone, anyone, not elders, not deacons, not a select group with little blue stars by their name, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Relevant for all Christians. Absolutely. Relevant for Christ-like leaders of the church. All the more. Six distinctives of Christ-like leadership for the church. The first, relational teaching. The second, sacrificial submission. The third, unashamed declaration. Unashamed declaration from 26 and 27. In verse 26, having dropped this big news bomb on the Ephesian elders, Paul says, Therefore, right, in light of the fact that you will never see me again, I am innocent of the blood of all. (laughs) So, only Paul, right? That is quite a statement. I mean, you would think that most of us, if we say, hey, I'm never gonna see you again, might then follow that statement with, but I don't know, like maybe if you ever find your way down to Jerusalem, we could meet up. You know, we could get coffee, we could hang out. It'd be great if we could see you again. But Paul says, I'm leaving for good, and I'm innocent of all y'all's blood. So, what is Paul saying? If we look at verse 27, we have a clue. He says, For I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And so, to understand this, we have to look back at the Old Testament passage that Paul is likely referencing, and probably would have come to mind for the elders of the Ephesian church. In Ezekiel chapter 33, we read that the prophet has been specially appointed by God as Israel's watchman. And Ezekiel has this divinely appointed job to warn Israel that wrath is coming. That's what a watchman is supposed to do, right? Warn people. If the watchman warns you and you don't listen, that's on you. But if the watchman doesn't warn and everybody gets tore up, That's on the watchman, right? Simple principle. So read with me from Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 7 and 9. God says, So you, talking to Ezekiel, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them, the people, warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will deliver your soul. So, bring it back to Acts chapter 20, Paul is saying, I'm your watchman. And I have fully declared the warning. I have sounded the alarm. I have told you exactly what I'm supposed to say. I've held nothing back. I did not shrink. I have given you the whole counsel of God. Heed what I have said, and all y'all in Ephesus better heed what I've said, because if you don't, I'm innocent of your blood. So what should we take from this? Well, I think Paul is giving us an example That he declared the whole counsel of God. Both the stuff that sounds nice and desirable, right? Free grace, forgiveness, eternal life, life abundant. As well as the hard stuff. You know, the idea that we're all sinners. That we're completely dead. We are unable to save ourselves. That any of our best deeds are like soiled rags. And Jeremiah reminds us too that we're to stand and speak To all the cities of Judah, all the words that I command you to speak to them, do not hold back a word. And so Paul here is reminding the elders they cannot hold back either. They cannot shrink. They cannot give in to what is politically correct or culturally palatable. Declare the whole word of God. Now, two quick notes here. One, this word declare, it's different from the word teach. Declare, in the Greek, is literally to announce, make known, or report, to bring back news. And the word for teach, on the other hand, literally means to hold discourse with others in order to instruct them. So you see, right, there's a difference. Leaders teach and leaders declare. Leaders do it in public and from house to house. The second thing I want to note here is that declaration... Does not need to be, nor should it be culturally or contextually ignorant. Right? We see Paul himself earlier in the book of Acts go into Athens and speak to the Areopagus in a way that is culturally relevant and specific to the idols that were in that culture. So, what I'm not advocating for and what Paul is not advocating for is that we just get out and yell through a megaphone scripture at people. Now, Declaration and teaching. Teaching in house to house and in public. Declaring the whole word of God. Six distinctives of Christ-like leadership for the church. Relational instruction, sacrificial submission, and unashamed declaration. Number four. Everybody still with me? A lot of points. I had 16, so, you know, I cut it down. Just kidding. Watchful care. Number four. Watchful care. From verses 28 to 31, having reminded us of Ezekiel and the notion of a God-appointed watchman, Paul now gives his first instruction to the elders. This is the first thing he's telling them they need to do. What does he say? He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. So elders are to first pay careful attention to themselves and second, pay careful attention to the flock. Why? Why? It says, because the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Overseers of what? The church. To care for the church of God, he says. And this church of God, which the Ephesian elders are overseers of, Christ obtained it with his own blood. He paid the ultimate price, and so it's his. Belongs to God, to Christ, and these elders have been entrusted with its care. And so, then why should elders pay careful attention to themselves and to all the flock? Well, verses 29 and 30 let us know that there is a threat. Fierce wolves, it says, that they will come in among you and from among your own selves, Paul says, speaking twisted things, drawing away the disciples after them, and not sparing the flock. Jesus offers a similar warning. When he says in Matthew chapter 7, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And so elders have to be careful. Elders have to be careful first that they themselves are not the ones to arise and speak twisted things. And second, that they protect the flock, the people of God, from such things. Paul goes on in verse 31 to say, Be alert. And he reminds them of three years he spent in Ephesus, not ceasing, it says, day or night, to admonish everyone with tears. And so, again, we have Paul's example to look to a model of what strong eldership and leadership looks like. He poured himself out to protect people, and he spent time with them to do so. Passionately, it says, with tears, admonishing people not to fall away from the faith or be deceived. So is this relevant for us in Raleigh in 2024? What are are the threats of fierce wolves that we face? Well, it could be the notion of irreligious individualism. right? As I said before, you do you. That sort of thinking can get into the church and into our minds that you define your truth. God is love and love is love. So let no one define you but you follow your heart your desires wherever they lead god created you and wants you to be happy whatever happiness is for you it sounds good sounds positive encouraging but is it gospel truth or on the other side right we could find our way into religious moralism right resting on the laurels of what we have done i became a christian I turned away from my sin. I now know what is right, and I am trying my hardest to live by it. God sees that, and he likes that, and he's going to honor that. I'm a partner. I serve on a team. I even attend one, serve one. I'm at FG almost every week. You can check church center attendance, but that guy over there, he needs this, he needs this sermon, right? Sounds religious, sounds Christian, but at the end of the day is becoming moralism, is straying from the gospel. And so the church must be on guard against the prevailing cultural norms and narratives that find their way into our minds and hearts and that conflate and confuse us with the gospel. And so it's on leaders, It's on overseers and elders to be charged with paying careful attention, to be watchful, and to provide care and protection. Six distinctives, relational instruction, sacrificial submission, unashamed declaration, and watchful care. Number five, gospel-centered. From verses 32 to 35, here Paul is going to give his now second piece of advice, He started with the first one, which is, pay careful attention and be alert. And now the second, he's going to say, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. So what is this? Paul is pointing the elders back to the gospel. It's, It's central to everything. And he says that the gospel is able to do two things. Number one, it's able to build you up and number two, it's able to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul would write this same truth as: "Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving." So, Paul's second big of advice, big piece of advice to the elders of the Ephesian church. Is to go back to the core of Christianity, to go back to the gospel message. We never graduate from this. doesn't matter if you became a Christian a minute ago. doesn't matter if you're the Apostle Paul. If you're the elders of the church, God and the word of his grace is what we are commended to over and over and over again. In verses 33 to 35, Paul is going to go on to say that He has coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. He doesn't care what you're wearing. So why would he say that after he says, stay focused on the gospel? Well, he might be saying that because there are some things, these among them, that are likely to get people off track from staying centered on the gospel, from being laser-focused on finishing their course, coveting silver, gold, or apparel. And so sacrificial submission to God's will probably means that you're not going to have the most silver or gold or the shiniest apparel. That Paul's encouragement is to stay centered on God and his word and not be distracted and preoccupied with these material wants or needs. Paul is saying there's a greater joy. There's a better inheritance that you need to put your mind and fix it on. The Ephesian elders must never take their eyes off that inheritance and become concerned with financial inheritance. Six distinctives of Christ-like leadership for the church were almost there. Relational instruction, sacrificial submission, unashamed declaration, watchful care, and gospel-centered. Number six, tender love. So we arrive at the end of Paul's speech And after Paul has said all of these things to the elders, Luke tacks on a few things for us. Luke, who's writing this narrative, wants us to see something here. It says, and when he had said these things, Luke describes how Paul knelt down with the elders to pray. And what we see is a tender portrait of brotherly love, of men emotionally and relationally connected to each other, We see that their hearts are heavy, they're sad, Says there was much weeping, and we shouldn't gloss over that, right? We have the leaders of the Ephesian church with one of the key leaders of the global church sitting together, having a good cry. Much weeping, it says. And so perhaps we should take away that emotionally healthy spirituality and manhood involves tender love among brothers. Yes, there's even embracing and kissing. Now, I don't have a lot of expositional insight to offer on that one, but I do think it's important that we take note of it. These guys loved each other, and they showed affection. Through all of the trials and hardships of ministry, the disappointments and the difficulties that these men faced, they are united in love for Jesus and love for each other. And they're sad to see their brother and their leader Paul depart from them for what he says will be the last time. They will miss him, and yet this is the call of ministry, that we don't get to stay where we want, with who we want, when we want. The Lord is directing Paul's steps, and he's faithful to respond. And the Ephesian elders, as far as we know, don't try to stop him. But it's still hard, and they still grieve, They're sad to see him go. Brotherly love, tender love among the elders and their leader. Six distinctives of Christ-like leadership for the church. Now, as I said earlier, this passage is surely relevant for elders and leaders of Fellowship Raleigh. Christian churches more broadly. And there's much here that I think should be a sobering reminder for those of us charged with leading the church, but it is also very much for all of us. Because you see, all of us who call on the name of Jesus as Savior, this passage is for us. It's for you if you're here just checking out what's going on, exploring the claims of Christianity, revisiting your faith, whatever the circumstance is, whatever brought you here this morning this passage is for you because you see, friends, this compelling leadership pep talk that Paul has given to the Ephesian elders and that offers many examples from his own life is ultimately the portrait of the perfect elder, the chief shepherd. There was and is a greater Paul who came and lived among us, serving the Lord with all humility and and with tears and trials. And that greater Paul, he too experienced plots of the Jews. He did not shrink back from declaring what was profitable, teaching in public, and from house to house. That greater Paul, he too testified to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in the Son of Man who had come to save his people. He too This greater Paul fixed his face on Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, and he knew exactly what awaited him there. He knew that imprisonment and great affliction were to come. He knew that he would willingly spread his hands out across a wooden beam in the shape of a cross and submissively allow a Roman centurion to drive a huge nail through his hand. And he did not account his life of any value or precious to himself, but rather he emptied himself for the sake of sinners. He was innocent of the blood of all, but he was perfectly and wholly undeserving of the injustice committed against him. And still he humbled himself and he laid his life down so that we might have his innocence, him in our place. And friends, this greater Paul told his closest brothers that they would see his face again because he would go to the grave and he would defeat it. And it could not hold him because he came to secure the inheritance that is eternal for all who will be sanctified, Christ's church, which he bought with his blood. This greater Paul is Jesus. And if you don't know him, he is Lord of all. He is the one that the Ephesian elders and our elders and you must never take your eyes off of. He is the one that you were invited to come to and lay your burdens before and follow him. And so we see six distinctives of Christ-like leadership for the church that were perfectly modeled by Jesus himself. Paul followed him, he told the Ephesian elders to follow him, and so let us follow him too. Amen. Let's pray.